We are going to get started and just um, one final wish of Happy Mother's Day because we don't have a particular Mother's Day sermon. We're just going to continue through the book of the Nehemiah. But what we do have is a gift. We have a gift for all the mothers. So as you leave, uh, please pick up one of the, I think they're little succulents. I don't even know what that word means. But, but, but I think I said it correctly. I sure hope. Uh, but be sure and, and grab yourself whatever that might be on the way out. I've heard that it's a good gift. So, so praise the Lord for that. You are worthy of that and much, much more. But but that's what we got you. So, um, so yeah, you can grab those. Those will be out in the lobby uh, on the way out. But if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9 again. We began studying this chapter last week. We looked at those first three verses, and through those first three verses, we learned some realities of repentance, some things that need to be real in our life in order for us to live a life that is consistently evaluating and knowing where we're at with the Lord, or you know, what we talked about last week was living a life of continual repentance. Not, not viewing that as a good thing. We, we tend to view repentance as a negative. It's, and, and, and yeah, it is something that's done after sin, but when we get into a routine of co- consistently evaluating ourselves, then what we find is we have to do that less and less. And those realities that we looked at that we want to see in our life all the time are internal dissection, eternal division, uh, external division, and eternal devotion. And those are the things that, that we need present in our life consistently. But the great news is, is that when that is our life, or just part of how we live, then we will see our relationship with God progress. That is how we see growth. And I want to show you that in our text this morning. We're actually kicking off a two-part sermon today that will take us through the rest of chapter 9. So we're gonna, you're going to have to come back next week to get the full story. It's, it's one sermon, but it's a long one. And, and I knew you didn't need me to go till 1 o'clock today. It's Mother's Day. So, so we're going to break it up into two parts. So we'll get part one today, part two next week. And the title of this two-part message is From Repentance to Relationship. And we're going to see the children of Israel move from a state of repentance in those first three verses, to acknowledging and enjoying the relationship they have with God through this national prayer of confession. So I didn't want to break that prayer up. The prayer is all one, but but there's too much to cover today. So we're going to cover a point and a half. There's three points. We'll cover a point and a half this morning, and then we'll we'll do the final point and a half next Sunday. Uh, But I, I do want you to focus in these next couple of weeks because I believe there is much that we can learn from this national prayer of Israel. Like I told you last week, Nehemiah chapter 9 correlates with two other chapter 9s in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra and the book of Daniel. They're very similar, and they're all prayers of repentance and confession for the nation of Israel regarding their sins that ultimately led them into captivity. So, so, so what I want you to understand is, is what we are going to look at today, this is a national prayer, not an individual prayer. And it's a national prayer of Israel specific to the promises that God had made to Israel that we cannot claim for ourselves. So doctrinally, we have to be careful in passages like this that we're not going to steal the promises away that God had given to Israel. We teach in our MTT how to study the Bible class, and I, and I put this on your outline sheet, that, that all of the Bible is written for us, but it's not all written to us. And that's true of the book of Nehemiah. That's the Old Testament and, and the prayer that we're going to look at today. But devotionally, as, as we've really been approaching this entire book, there is much to learn. There are principles within this prayer that are good for us to understand in order to help us build a relationship with God in our lives, in our homes, and in this church. So today's passage is a great example of Romans 15, uh, 4, that says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, as in the Old Testament, were written for our learning, 
that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And I believe that today's message should give you hope. Now we do have a lot of ground to cover and we have some limited time this morning. So we're going to go ahead and get into it. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8. That's all we're going to tackle this morning and then we'll finish out the chapter next week. But in Nehemiah chapter 9 starting in verse 4. The Bible says, Then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua, and Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunny, which just seems to be an unfortunate name for a dude. I, I, like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he was tough, but the Old Testament is different, but, you know, I don't know. I'd, I'd question that one. But Bunny, uh, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani, and cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God, and the Levites, Jeshua, and Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shabaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram and brought us him forth out of earth of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham and found us his heart, his heart faithful before thee and made us a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusite, Jebusites, and the Girgashites to, to give it, I say, to his seed and has performed thy words for thou art righteous. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much uh, for this day that, that we do set aside to, to celebrate the, the, the ladies in, in our life, the mothers in our life, the grandmothers, the spiritual mothers, the mentors, that Lord, that just um, do have great impact on us. And, and Lord, you, you gave um, women special and unique skills and, and, and unique gifts um, that are so important in, in all of our individual lives, but also in the body of Christ. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for, for your perfect creation of man and, and woman and, and just how that just so fitly joins together. And, and Lord, we're, we're grateful for all that you do um, through the women in our life. And so, Lord, I pray for today. I pray for the service that we have in front of us. Lord, I pray that, that your word is exalted, and I pray that it is true to it. I pray that you're honored and glorified through it. And, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit teaches us as only he can. And, Lord, we'll ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, like I told you last week, Nehemiah chapter 9 is the longest specific prayer found in the Bible. And, and through this prayer, we see them move from that state of repentance to relationship. Because after the, they have that time in those first three verses, they don't neglect to communicate with God. They use their repentance to actually drive them closer in relationship with God. And, and that's all prayer is, by the way. It is communicating with God. And it is quite simple. And yet I hear people talk all the time about how they struggle with prayer. And I've even felt that at times in my life. So let me give you a little prayer tip here as we get into this prayer. Because we get to see the biblical pattern for proper communication and relationship with the Lord here in Nehemiah's chapter 8 and chapter 9. Because what we see is that ours is a God who communicates. And based upon his communication, we respond. You see, too many times I, I think we struggle with prayer or, or more specifically with with our prayers being answered, because we like to initiate all the conversation and all the communication. And once we've spilled our guts to the Lord, we don't really know what else to say. But the pattern that you see, not only here in Nehemiah, but throughout the Bible, is that we respond to God's communication. And we know that today he communicates through his word. That was Nehemiah chapter 8. That was Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 3. So even our personal requests. So I'm not saying we never initiate a prayer. We never initiate communication with God. But even our personal requests, those personal prayers, ought to come out of something that God has said to us in his word. It ought to, it ought to acknowledge and assent to the attributes that God has laid out for us in his word. So if you struggle with prayer, here's the tip. 
read God's word. And then stop along the way and pray according to the Bible. So, so maybe you read something about God's provision. We'll, we'll stop and, and think about how God has provided for you and then thank him for it. Maybe you read about God's healing. We'll stop and pray for those who need physical and spiritual healing. Maybe you read that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Stop and pray for those in your life that need to be saved and pray for open doors to witness. But one of my go-to counseling assignments, and I can't take credit for it, I learned it from Alan Shelby, but it is to tell a person that I'm counseling to go find themselves in the Psalms. That no matter what emotion you're feeling, just pick up the book of Psalms, start reading anywhere, and read until you find yourself. And it won't take long. And when you do, pray that psalm back to God. In your own words, personalize it, but pray it back to God. Listen, that is the point of Scripture. Because the point of Scripture is not just information, it is transformation. The point of Scripture is not just information, it's transformation. Your goal is to hear from God. And when you do, and the Holy Spirit prompts you, you can stop and respond to what you hear. And guess what? Then it becomes a conversation. It's how you build a relationship the right way, through God's word. He initiates, you respond, it's that simple. And if you just do this, you'll never run out of stuff to pray about. Never. That's pretty cool. Listen, you don't need to read a bunch of books to learn how to pray better. You don't need to go to conferences on prayer. And I'm, and, and I'm not saying don't do those things. Those things can be helpful. But truthfully, all you really need is his, is his word. And let me tell you, that is all we are going to see with the children of Israel's prayer this morning. It's all Bible. And it's interesting because the first two verses that we read, we see how the leaders kind of set up two sections of prayer. One for confession, crying out to the Lord, and one for exaltation and blessing the Lord. And that gives us the first aspect of relationship prayer that we see here. And there, is a, there was a recognition of his perfection. A recognition of his perfection. So he alone is worthy to confess to. And he alone is worthy to be blessed. And they did this, what it says there in verse 5, by exalting his name. And his name is called glorious, if you look there in verse 5. And while the word name is singular in, in verse 5, we know that, that God has many names. And that's because there is no one name that can encapsulate who God is. You know, there's something very, very special in the name of God. Like, we can't comprehend it. I mean, it's, it's, it's God, it's Jesus, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's all his name. And, and there are name after name that you find in the Bible that, that describe who God is. We know that his name is salvation. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. His name is joy. Psalm 5.11, But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. His name is Powerful and mighty. Jeremiah 10.6, For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. His name is wisdom. Micah 6.9, The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? His name is help. Psalm 124, verse 8, Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. His name is protection and safety. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. And we could go on and on describing the attributes of God through his name. It is amazing and it is perfect. And yet, in Psalm 138 and verse 2, we read, 
I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. You see, we make a big deal about the word of God around here. And we believe that it is perfect and authoritative and sufficient and that it is not outdated and that it is still culturally relevant even today and it is the sole standard for life. And we do that unapologetically because we hold God's word in the same position that God does, even above his name. And for you to get all you can get out of your relationship with God, you need to recognize the perfection in him and in his word. And when you do, that blesses the Lord. That's what Nehemiah 9 says. And that concept of blessing the Lord has, has always been some, some, somewhat interesting to me. You know, I, I used to think, how, how could I bless him? How could I bless the Lord? You know, he's God. He's got it all. But it is something you see throughout the entire Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. So it's something he desires. He specifically desires it from the nation of Israel, but we have the ability to do it also. And I began to get a glimpse of how it's possible when I had kids. Because my kids bless me how? By honoring me. By obeying me with the right heart. That blesses me. And the same thing blesses the Lord too because it sets him apart as special, as holy. This is all connected to what we've been talking about these last few weeks with the concept of holiness. And this is exactly what the beginning of verse 6 is referencing. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Listen, God is special and he is singular in that specialness. He is set apart from all other gods because he is holy. And that means that anything else in this world that is holy, like us, is because of him. Holiness is only possible positionally because we are in him. And holiness is only possible practically when we are walking in him. Do you remember when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? It's what's commonly referred to as, as the Lord's Prayer, even though it's a prayer we never see him pray. It's just something he was teaching his disciples to do. But how does that prayer start? Matthew 6, 9. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And do you know what hallowed means? It means to make holy. Okay, well, wait a second. God's already holy without us, obviously. So how do we make him holy? Listen, we make him holy when we set him apart in our life. It's for us. It's not for him. God's holy without us. But we make him holy in our life when we set him apart in our life. You see, Matthew 6, 9 when he said, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that's not just poetry and flattery. That is wisdom and instruction. Let me show you a cross-reference where the, the same Greek word for hallowed is translated a little different way. It's Revelation twenty-two eleven. It says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy. Still, that's let him be hallowed still. And that is how you approach God, is how we need to approach God. We set him apart as holy, as perfect. And you recognize who he is, and in contrast, who you aren't, who I am not. This was actually God's biggest complaint with Moses. When Moses messed up and struck the rock in Numbers chapter 20, right? The children of Israel, they're complaining again, this time about water. It already dealt with this before, but Moses goes back to God, talks to him about it, and, and God gives Moses the instructions, right? Before, he had told him to, to, to strike the rock, but this time, he doesn't. There's, and there's pictures and all of that, but he tells 
he tells Moses to just speak to the rock. But in his frustration, Moses struck the rock again. In fact, he struck it twice. And like I said, there are a lot of cool pictures in that. There are reasons why that was wrong thing to do. There are many layers in, in, in that chapter. But look at how God boils it down in verse 12 of Numbers chapter 20. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. God said their sin was not believing him enough to sanctify him or to set him apart in the eyes of the children of Israel. And listen, when it comes to our life, and most of the sin that we get into and most of the bad decisions that we make, I think it boils down to the fact that we don't view God correctly. You see, God is holy without us acknowledging it, but it is sin for us not to recognize it. And it blesses God when we do recognize it. But when we don't, when we, when we don't recognize all that God is, what we're doing is, is not only not setting God apart, instead we are setting ourselves apart. We're setting ourselves in the place that God deserves. That's what Moses did. He didn't listen to God. He listened to his own spirit. And his own spirit was frustrated. His own spirit was angry. Psalm 106, verse 32 and 33, recounting this, as they angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes. And look at verse 33. Because they provoked his spirit so that he spake unadvisedly with his lips. See, Moses put the focus on himself. And it doesn't matter what we say we think about God. The, the, the proof is in the proverbial pudding. Our sin against him is because of unbelief. And unbelief is because we haven't put him in his proper place. We haven't set him apart in our life. And so we don't view him like we should, and we view ourselves higher than we should. And it results in sin. Listen, a, a few minutes ago I was talking about the perfection of the Bible and how fully sufficient it is. And it is, and I mean that, it is sufficient in, in all areas of life. I, I believe that to my core, that you don't need anything extra from this world. And yet I know many people whose experience is different than that. And they would say they've tried it and it hasn't worked. And many of them have even walked away from the Lord because of it. Well, if, if that's you or that's been your experience in the past, let me give you the answer. Because maybe you still wonder why the, the, the quote-unquote Christian life doesn't work for you. Or maybe you wonder why the Word of God has no impact in your life. It's this simple. It's because you don't believe it enough to set it apart in your life as something special. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard of us you received it not as the word of men it was something special but as it was in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It's only going to work if you believe and You'll only believe it if you think it's something special and you think it's holy. And when you don't do that and when you neglect that, there are dire consequences to be paid. It won't work in your life. You're right. Because God wants it set apart. And I don't know what all those dire consequences will look like, but, but I know this. I know how it looked in Moses' life. I know it will include limitation. Your spiritual life, if you don't set God's word apart like, it, like, it is, like he desires for it to be, your spiritual life will be limited. You see, Moses didn't get all that God had for him. He didn't get to go into the land. He led the people out of Egypt, but he didn't get to lead them into Canaan. His sin limited what God allowed him to do. And the same thing will be true of you and me as well. When we don't set God apart, when we don't set his word apart, we'll be limited and not experience all that God intends for us. All because we don't recognize 
his perfection. And we focus on self instead of him. We need to learn to set him apart this morning. And we do that by setting his word apart. And when we do, we can experience a relationship with him that is dynamic, that is full, that is completely satisfying. And and bringing this back to our text, that is the whole point of prayer. To acknowledge him for who he is. To recognize his perfection, not to make him our personal genie. Not to try to manipulate him into meeting our needs and our demands. No. Prayer is to show complete dependence upon the one and only true God. And, and we're usually like, you know what, let's, let's get all the preliminaries out of the way. You know, let's thank him for, for who he is and tell him that we love him and how good he is. Let's get those preliminaries out of the way so that I can tell God what I need. Well, first of all, he already knows. But even more importantly, that's not the point. It's not the point at all of prayer. We come to God in prayer, why? To set him apart. Are you praying to other gods? If you are, shame on you. There's only one true one. And that act of prayer sets him apart as special. Unless... You're making yourself the point of the prayer. And in that case, you're setting yourself apart. This is what prayer is about. It is to draw us closer to him. We go through time in his word and we see what his word says. And it drives us to a point of repentance. And then we come to the Lord and we acknowledge who he is. And all that he is in his perfection and this draws us closer to to him in relationship. In in John chapter 21, there's that famous story of of Jesus confronting Peter after his denial. So this is obviously after the the resurrection and before the ascension. And and Peter's out on the lake and and Jesus shows up and, you know, he he tells them from the shore to to cast their nets and, you know, to the other side of the boat and, you know, the 153 fish or whatever it was that they catch. And Peter recognizes who it is. You know, he understands, okay, man, that's the Lord. That's Jesus. And so Jesus calls him in. And he has that sort of famous conversation with him where he asks him those three times, if, if he loves them, lovest thou me more than these? And it was symbolic for the three times that Peter had denied him. But it hits on something much deeper than that. It hits on the, on the depth of relationship. And those are, those are questions. That, that, that's a question that we should always be asking ourselves. And I, and I want you to know that, that that's a question that Jesus is always asking of us. Because that's the issue. When we come before God in prayer. Because we usually come with our list and our request. And God wants to know. Lovest thou me more than these? Lovest thou thee more than these? Than all your wants and desires? Than all your list and pet projects? Do you love me? Or do you just love my provision? And if you recognize him for who he really is, the only thing perfect, then it'll drive you to love him and not just what he can provide for you. And listen, God is so good, he'll keep providing. That's part of who he is. He's a provider and a protector and he's a refuge. He's all of those things. And he won't stop being those things. But he wants us to set him apart. As something special. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said, Let your mind rove upon the great doctrines of the Godhead. Consider the existence of God from before the foundations of the world. Behold him who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Let your soul comprehend as much as it can of the infinite and grasp as much as possible of the eternal. And I'm sure if you have minds at all, they will shrink with awe. And listen, that. 
I mean, that is God. He, he is perfection. He's indescribable, and yet he describes himself in his word. And I, I don't know how to, I wish I could describe him better. I don't know how to do it, but, but I do know that at some point, f- for us to get everything that God has for us in, in relationship with him, we have to have a, a mindset of awe with the Lord. And awe of, of, of who he is and, and what his word is and the perfection that's there. If you're ever really going to build for him, if you're going to be used by him to bring him glory, that at some level you, you've got to live in that state. And this life isn't worth it otherwise. I mean, too many other distractions. If you don't understand his perfection and all that means. But if you do, then there's nothing else worth doing. There's no other life worth living. So take the steps necessary to build your relationship with him. And that brings us to the second aspect of relationship prayer that we see here. There was, there was a recognition of his perfection setting him apart as singular and special. And then they move from that and they begin a rehearsal of the past. A rehearsal of the past. So from verse 6 all the way down through verse 35, what the Levites do here they do is a review of the history of time, specifically their history as a nation up to the present point in Nehemiah. So the Levites began counting their blessing and and chronicling their own mishaps along the way. Now, we'll see most of this next week. But I want to read verses 6 through 8 again so you see how this starts. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas and all that are therein, and thou preservest them all. And the host of heaven worshipeth thee. And by the way, if he's able to preserve all of his creation, don't you think he could preserve his word? I think he can. And I know that he has. Verse 7. Thou art the Lord, the God who didst choose Abram, and brought us him forth out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and gave us him the name of Abraham. And foundest his heart faithful before thee, and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and has performed thy words, for thou art righteous. And the chronicling of, of, of history just kind of goes on from there. And this is very important because, first of all, it's good to trace God's hand. In your personal past, it's good to trace God's hand in church history. Because when we recognize him at work in the past, then you can more clearly see how he wants to work in the present and in the future, particularly in your own life. And that is exactly what we see through this prayer narrative. Exactly how God works in our life. Because what we're going to see, we're just going to get started this morning, but there are seven attributes of God that are outlined in this prayer. And what these seven attributes of God show us is what our relationship with him is like. All right, so how it is supposed to work from its inception to when we meet him. All right, and so there's seven things that God does in our life, all to draw us in relationship. And this is the way that he worked through the nation of Israel. This is the way he works through the church. And it's the same way he works in our life. We're going to look at the first three uh, very quickly in the time we have left. And then we'll pick this back up next week. But first, what we see is he creates. He creates. That was verse 6. The children of Israel noted that God made heaven, the heaven of heavens. There are multiple heavens, three heavens by the way, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that are therein. So let me just say, certainly here and nowhere in their Bible is there ever any talk of evolution, not even theistic evolution, not presented in this verse or in in the Bible. Creation by God is presented as fact, undebatable. And, and, and that's why we need to instill these things in our kids 
from the earliest beginning and give them this biblical worldview. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is stated as fact, and we move from there. It's not up for debate. And whenever God wanted to encourage his people so many times, he would point them to the creation around them and remind them that that was his work. Deuteronomy 10.14 said, Behold, look upon, behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. The earth also with all that is therein. Psalm 33.6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Isaiah 40, verses 25 and 26. To whom then will ye liken me? I love this verse. Or shall I be equal? Who's he equal with me? Who are you likening me with? Say it, the Holy One. No, just do this. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things? That bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them by all by names, by the greatness of his might. For he that is strong in power, not one faileth. And, and there's verses upon verses like this. And listen, he, he created the world, but he is able to create in us also, right? These are picture, this is a picture of what God does in our life. And these attributes is how he builds a relationship with us. And it begins with creation. Because creation is where our relationship with God starts. And the same power that God displayed in Genesis chapter 1 when he was creating the world is on display each time someone of their own free will gives their life to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And through salvation, God creates in us. He the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us and he creates in us something new. But here's the logical. I mean, that's, that's all theology, but I, I want to I get to practice because here's the logical conclusion of all this. If God is the creator, then he is the owner. That means we have no rights other than what he gives us. And the primary task he has given us is to glorify him with our life. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. And, and we have been, this is true of the bride of Christ, it is true of us individually as well. We have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. So what should we do then? Just sit back and enjoy the blessings of God? No. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We're to glorify him. That is the entire purpose of our life. We use the, the grace that God's given us. Grace equals blessing. And, and we're saved by faith through, through the grace of God. And that grace is his blessing. And so we don't just keep that and sit on that for ourselves. Oh, we put it to work. We employ God's grace, not just enjoy, but we employ God's grace, we get to work according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where his workmanship created into good works. So we put that grace, that blessing to, that God's given us to work so that we can extend God's glory. And what most Christians do is they receive God's grace and they receive that blessing and it just sits with them. And they just look for God to continue to bless them. Oh, God wants to use you as a conduit to where his grace is bestowed upon you and the blessing of God is bestowed upon you and then you share it with others. That's how God gets glory. That's how he gets glory in our life. But you have to put aside your own self-admiration and general selfishness and focus on the fact that God owns you. So many times, again... We think we're the center, and it's like, man, we must be pretty cool for, for God to save me. You know, thank you, Lord, but that was, I'm, I'm pretty cool, aren't I? And that we're the center. <laughs> we're the center of this. No, this, the center is God, and, the, and it's about his glory. 
So he uses us, the grace is to go through us to others so that glory goes back up to him. I mean, we're just a little pawn in this chess game. So you have to love God more than you love yourself, and that's hard for us sometimes. And, and, and we like to think that we're the owner of our own life. We certainly live that way too many times. But if you've given your life to him, if you are in Christ, then you are his. And that brings us to the second attribute of God found in this prayer, and that is he calls. He not only creates, he calls. Because after God created the world, some 12 chapters later in the book of Genesis, he chose a man to start a nation. And he called out Abram. Verse 7 again, Nehemiah 9.7. Thou art the Lord, the God who didst choose Abram and brought us him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gavest him the name of Abraham. See, God had a plan for their nation. And it began with an imperfect man. In fact, Joshua 24.2 says he was an idolater. Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood. In old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor. And they served other gods. He was an idolater. He was an imperfect man. And yet in Nehemiah 9.8, we see that he had a faithful heart. And that's what God's looking for. Look at David. You can boil some, there's some, key things you can boil down in the Bible. And David, a very imperfect man, dealt with his own, you know, big sins. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. Abraham, an idolater, but he, was, he had a faithful heart. And so what did God do? He changed the name of that man from Abram to Abraham because he had a new mission. And God did this multiple times throughout the Bible. Jacob, he turned to Israel. Simon Peter, he turned to Cephas. Saul, he turned to Paul. And a new, and a name change represent, represented a new identity. A name change represented a new identity. A new calling came with a new name. And listen, at the point you and I get saved, we too get a new identity in Christ. And we get a new calling on our life. There's now a purpose 2 Timothy 1.9, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. Not according to our works, not according to any good we have in us, but according to his own purpose and grace. Right? This gets back to what we were just talking about. That grace, that blessing that God bestows upon our life has a purpose. It's not just for you. He's called us to a holy calling according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And that general purpose is to glorify God. We just talked about that. But how that's going to play out in your life is specific to you. And that's different than how it's going to play out. You know, how God uses me may be different than how God uses you. But listen, it's all about him getting glory. And how he gets glory is when we use the grace that he has given with us and share it with others. That's his grace, his blessing. That we become a conduit. So however that looks in your life, you need to get about doing it. All of us need to understand what God has called us to do and how he's asking us to glorify him with our lives and our homes. But here's how good God is. It's not just a one-sided story. He doesn't expect us to serve, up, to serve him without sustaining us along the way. And that's what we see in the third attribute, the last one we'll look at this morning. The third attribute of God in this national prayer, and that is he, he covenants. He, he covenants together with his people. Look at verse 8. Speaking of Abraham, and foundest his heart faithful before thee, and madest a covenant with him to give him a, a, a wide swath of land. Right? You see, God made a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant involved lamb, but it is far wider and far deeper than that. It is an eternal covenant with Israel. And there are multiple covenants in the Bible. The point of this morning isn't to study those covenants. But, but here's what that pictures for us in a New Testament setting, in a, in a, in a body of Christ setting. It pictures for us the, the promises that we have from the Lord. Again, I told you at the beginning, there are national promises to Israel that are specific to Israel that, that we can't steal. 
But God promises us things too. He's provided a whole set of promises to, that in, his, in his word that are meant to sustain us. And I've showed you this verse before, but I love it. It's 1 Kings 8.56. Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. And listen, if he kept all his promises to his rebellious, idolatrous, cheating nation of Israel, don't you think he'll do the same with us as well? He always will, but we do have to do our part because many of his promises include conditions. Many of his promises include conditions. For example, this is one we talk about a lot and we go to a lot, but it is a great example. Do you want peace? Do you need peace in your life? Well, guess what? God has promised it with a condition. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 it says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made out unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So verse 7 is a promise, but it's predicated upon verse 6. If you're not going to pray to him, and you're just going to worry, and you're just going to care about the things of this world then you can't claim the promise of verse 7. You have to, you obey verse 6, and God will uphold verse 7. That's how it works. You, you, you can't just name, like, you know, we hear people, and when we talk about, you know, name it and claim it. You know, well, listen, that's not how God's word works. It's not a name it and claim it, bag it and tag it type of agreement. Most of God's promises have conditions, and you can only claim them when you're holding up your end of the deal. Naming it isn't enough. Some action is required. But he won't fail on his end. You can count on that. But, you know, it, it always goes back to this. Here's the thing. If you do want to claim those promises that God's given you in his word to, to, to sustain you through the trials of this life, the question is very simple. It's this. Do you know him? Because if you don't know the promise, that means you don't know the condition. And you got to know your part in order for God to hold up his part. So get in God's word and find out what they are. So are you spending time in the word so that you can live by those promises, allowing them to sustain you when nothing else will? But listen, if you do, you will have and experience a real and fulfilling relationship with the Lord. And there's nothing better than that. There's just nothing better than that. It's what we all want. Some of us just aren't willing to put in the work that is required. And that work begins with recognizing him for who he is, in his perfection, in all his names and ultimately through his word. But then it also involves rehearsing and seeing God throughout your life. How does God work through your life? Are you saved? Then are you walking in that calling of your life and using God's grace to bless others, using yourself as a conduit so that God gets glory? That's the spiritual vocation to which we've been called. And are you living and thriving in the promises from him only found in his word? They will get you through the tough times of his calling. But listen, that's not all. There is so much more to our relationship with him that we're going to see next week. So we're going to keep building. And this national prayer lays out for us all that we need and all that God has for us through these seven attributes. And he creates and he calls and he covenants and he promises and it just goes on from there and it should change your life when you look at all that God wants to do in and through you it should change your life so let's take time and make sure that we understand verses one through three and that we will repent and stay keep ourselves clean and holy so that we can move from that state to a state of relationship and communication and enjoying what God has for us so that we can use that
to bless others, to glorify him. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And we just take this as our time. We close out in one final song every single week. And, and this is our time to again acknowledge God for who he is, to worship him in all his beauty and, and the beauty of holiness that he is. But it's also our individual times to analyze ourselves and to see where we're at and to see if God's word has spoken to you this morning, if the Holy Spirit is prompting you in your heart to make any changes, to, to repent of anything that you're not living up to the standard of his word in. And, and if there is that, Lord, I, man, I, I pray that the Lord will convict you to get you to a place to build that relationship. Because as long as there's sin in your life and you're not able to get past that, your relationship will always be limited. And, and God has so much planned. We're just beginning to see it. We'll see it more next week. He has so much planned, but if you won't get right with him, you can't get it from him. And if you don't know the Lord as your Savior this morning, if there's never been a time in your life that you placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ as a payment for your sins, and if you don't know and aren't sure of your salvation, can I beg you to get that settled this morning? Because if you aren't saved, the Bible says that you are destined to spend an eternity in hell separated from Almighty God. But the good news is Jesus made a way. And he made a way by coming to this earth, living the perfect life, dying on the cross for your sins and mine, and raising again on the third day. And if you place your faith in that, God says he will save you. And when he saves you, he wants to build a relationship with you. There's, there's nothing better in this life than that. Will you let him do that in your life today? Will you choose the Lord today? Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful again for for today, we're so thankful that, that we have this freedom to come and, and worship you and open up your word. And, and Lord, I, I just pray that your Holy Spirit uses it in, in all of our lives. Everybody here is in a different spot this morning and dealing with different issues of life and, and dealing with, with different spiritual realities. And, and yet, Lord, your Holy Spirit wants to work in all of us and wants to use all of us. And so, Lord, I pray that, that he's working now, even in hearts and, and lives of the men and women we have here. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that, that they will take this time and that they will, will uh, meet you today, that they will meet you this morning, that they will give their life over and surrender their life to you. And Lord, if, if anybody has any questions about that, they can certainly come forward and, and we would love to talk them and, and, and help them through that. But Lord, I pray that you're glorified today. Be glorified in this final song that we're going to sing to you. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.